0: fill us full of spaghetti on this um, special day. Today is kind of a holiday. Um, I guess it's really a holiday if you live in Cincinnati today. It might seem kind of special, but I'm not referring to a football game. I'm referring to Valentine's Day, which of course is not today. Today Today's kind of Valentine's Day Eve, so technically it's tomorrow. I know that most of you are are attending today's uh, romantic youth fundraiser lunch that we will have, and so for us it is Valentine's Day. So I thought... um, Hey, while we are doing this series about our emotions and uh, why the Lord gave them to us and how they fit into our lives, why not take a Sunday and take the risk and talk about the emotion that we call being in love? So this is going to be a little different uh, emotion, kind of specialized. There is a PowerPoint up there somewhere, Austin. There it is. I told him that because I worked really hard to make it look all romantic and everything. Um, but this this feeling definitely fits into the category that we are talking about Uh, like the other emotions uh, the in love emotion um, does communicate value or importance Uh, of course it's also very relationship driven Uh, most of us probably felt the emotion of being in love sometime in our early teen years around there Uh, it may have recurred many times since then i don't know if you are married today there is a good chance that that this emotion played a role in what transpired and in that decision. Um, When you're in love, uh, it usually involves uh, some kind of fixation on a member of the opposite sex. And you want to see this person. You want to be with this person. You want to be around this person. You know, whenever you turn a corner, you're hoping to run into this person. And whenever you come into a group of people, you scan the group to see if If this person is present, and if they're not, then you're really bummed out. You feel really excited whenever you're around them. Your heartbeat goes up a few paces. You know, it's a powerful attraction. And it's more than just a physical or sexual attraction. There's something else going on that you just don't understand. Yes, you're probably physically attracted to the person, but if pressed, you'd probably admit that, objectively speaking, they're not the best-looking person in the world— but then again, to you, they are. And if they were standing in the same room with the world's most beautiful model, you wouldn't even notice the model. And you might not understand it, but it's an awesome feeling. Science tells us that when it comes to being in love, there's, there's a lot of chemistry involved in this particular emotion. Um, I'm kind of a child of the 80s, so I'm going to share a couple songs with you today. But, but uh, Huey Lewis was right. Um, in that song, I Want a New Drug, one that makes me feel like I feel when I'm with you, because when you're in love, believe it or not, your brain experiences um, something that is not that different from what it experiences with drug use. Your adrenaline levels skyrocket, so does your dopamine and your serotonin, all those, those feel-good chemicals. And another thing is, once you've had this sensation, you want to have it again, right? So you might as well face it. You're addicted to love, right? Um, It can be addictive. Now, now, that was not in my notes. I don't know where that came from. (laughs) Now, one one obvious question that we can ask is this. Does the Bible have anything to say about romantic love? And the answer is yes. It clearly does. And I want to look at some of what it has to say today in one passage in particular, and perhaps we can dispel Um, this is one of my goals today, to try to dispel some of the myths and misunderstandings that we have, some of which, by the way, are extremely destructive to our lives and to our relationships. And these myths and misunderstandings tend to throw us off base when it comes to romantic love. So for now, turn to the book of Proverbs, the big book right after Psalms. I'm not going to tell you exactly where yet because our passage is kind of PG-13 and I don't want you reading ahead to try to find it. All right? So, parents, by the way, you're having a prayer answered right now because your youth are currently paying attention to the sermon. Um, some years ago, um, I was at a bachelor party. Uh, I'm going to give that some context here. I'm going to give you some details, but, but what, well, it was a Christian bachelor party. Um, Don and I were attending an um, international church up in Washington, D.C., and one of the guys in our church was getting married. And so the pastor, not me at the time, this was another pastor, he thought it would be a good idea to have a bachelor party for this guy, a Christian bachelor party. So he made a reservation at a fancy Chinese restaurant um, down in the District of Columbia. And there were maybe 15 of us guys there. We were really from different countries all over the world. It was really a cool group. You know, we were seated at this big table in this Chinese restaurant, and he had reserved uh, this big table. But for some reason, the hostess had seated along with us in that room, just one other couple. And they were right next to us at our table. And so it was 15 guys and this poor couple. And while we were waiting, for, it wasn't real rowdy or anything, but while we were waiting for our food, uh, Pastor Wong took out his Bible. What do you do at a Christian bachelor party? You take out your Bible. So he began to read Scripture. And most of the passages he read were from the Song of Solomon. Which, if you've ever read the, the Song of Solomon, you know it can get a little bit racy and um, we're all at the table kind of feeling a little bit uncomfortable, but nothing like this poor couple next to us that was just trying to enjoy their date. And at some point, the pastor, um, he switched over to Proverbs, and he read the passage I'm about to read to you, at which point the couple stood up. The man shared some choice words with us, basically implied that we were a bunch of perverts, and they stormed out of the restaurant. So we were a really good witness that day to that couple, let me tell you. Um, so with that introduction, turn to Proverbs 5, and I'm just going to read you two verses, Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. We'll stop there. Now, parents, we will, we will keep it pretty tame this morning, okay? But obviously, this is a very sexually charged passage. And there are a couple of good reasons for that. For one thing, the feelings involving romance and sex, physical attraction and being in love are often very intertwined in our experience. And guess what? When they're referred to in Scripture, they're intertwined there as well. It only makes sense. But if you step back and you take a look at this whole chapter, what you'll see is that what we have here is an older man telling his younger son how to avoid avoid the deadly trap of committing adultery. That's what this whole chapter is basically about. And before we go any farther, let let me say that I realize that some of you may have been through this pain at some point in your marriage or in your life. And if you've dealt with that, please know that adultery is not the unforgivable sin. It is not beyond where God can restore, but it is a very painful thing to undergo. It's a very difficult thing to deal with, and you don't want to go there. And one of the ways for this young man to avoid adultery, and for us, whether men or women today, to do that, is to take note of passages like this that might end up being rather explicit, but to take them seriously. And this is serious. It's a reminder that the Bible sees sex As a good and godly thing, he invented it, but that it is only to be pursued within a committed covenant relationship, marriage, between a man and a woman. In fact, these two verses taken together really form kind of a double edged sword that can really kind of destroy really carve up some of the myths and lies that we tend to believe about love, sex, and romance. And the first myth or lie that I've already alluded to is this one, that God doesn't care about romantic love. That being in love is kind of, sometimes we Christians tend to spiritualize everything, you know, and we think of being in love as a kind of unbiblical or sub-Christian idea because real godly love, after all, is a choice. It's an action. It's a choice that reflects you want to act for the good of the other person. It doesn't depend on emotion or sentimentality or, worse yet, hormones, right? And that's true. I affirm that. But while it is true that the deepest and most honored kind of love in the Bible is is that unconditional love, that we read about in, in 1 Corinthians 13, that, that commitment that is re- represented by the Greek word agape, that is, is but that's not the only kind of love that the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about other kinds of love. There, there is a friendship love, for instance, that in marriage becomes kind of a, of a soulmate love. And yes, there's a romantic, erotic love. And even though the Greek word that represents this love, eros, doesn't itself appear in the New Testament, there is a whole book of the Old Testament that is dedicated to its delights. And that's the Song of Solomon. I don't know how many of you have read this book of the Bible. Maybe you'd like to take a look at it this week. You can read it through with your spouse tomorrow if you'd like to, on Valentine's Day. But if you do that, you will see that it is more than just ancient Near East erotic poetry. These two people are in love. They're in love. They dream about one another. And in and, and the woman's dream, in chapter three, she's going around the city looking for her beloved and she can't find him. And she's going to all the streets and the squares and she's asking everyone, have you seen him? Have you seen him? Have you seen him? But they haven't and she's all bummed out. There are other times when this couple, they're kind of trying to peer through the lattices, trying to catch each other's eye. In short, they have a crush on each other. And this kind of desire is not ridiculed or minimized. It's actually celebrated. It's a wonderful gift from God that two people could feel this way about each other. And it's all the more amazing when you consider that in most cultures throughout much of history, marriage has not been looked at as a terribly romantic arrangement. Really, it was often seen uh, merely as the, the vehicle for producing children, or as a hedge to, to help people discipline themselves to not be unfaithful. And of course, in the, you know, among the real rich people in the upper classes, marriage was often used to form family alliances or to secure money or land or social status or political power, things like that. But here's God in Proverbs 5 saying, no, that won't do. He's saying something very different. He's saying, hey, fall in love with your wife. Fall in love with your husband. Be infatuated with each other. Be intoxicated with love for your marriage partner. And just saying, just, just, if we just stay with these two verses here in Proverbs, the fact that God would actually tell us to do this is going to blow up two of the other more destructive myths or lies, what we often believe. The second lie or myth says this, when the magic's gone, it's time to move on. There's a lie from the pit of hell. Amen. When the magic's gone, it's time to move on. You know what? Those of you who have been through pre-marriage counseling with me, you know that in the very first meeting, I, I do a drawing. and I'm not a very good artist, but I, this is easy to draw. So I draw you a picture of a wedding cake. And that cake has three layers in it, representing the three different kinds of love. And this romantic love that we're talking about today, I will, I will I'll say that's the top layer. And I'll always say, look, it's not just the icing on the cake, but it forms the whole top layer. And romantic love works really well as the top layer of the cake, but it makes a lousy foundation. And unfortunately, a lot of couples try to build their wedding cake upside down. They try to build their love life upside down by using romance and sex as a foundation. And young people and single people who are here today, a lot of voices are telling you, to put either sex or the emotion of being in love in the driver's seat, to put that on a pedestal and make it the foundation for how you make choices about your romantic life. But listen, this emotion, glorious though it may be, cannot sustain the weight of a successful marriage relationship. It can't. It was never meant to do that. These neurochemists the guys who know about all the dopamine and the serotonin and all the the feeling of being in love and all that, they estimate that the human brain can sustain that condition for a maximum of two years. And so, if you've been building your marriage relationship on that feeling of being enthralled with love for one another, when you come to the time when the chemical levels start to drop and life together maybe loses some of its other glitter as well, you know, because you've got kids running around and that sort of thing, then you will probably assume at that point that something is very wrong with your relationship, and and you wonder whether you made a terrible mistake. On the other hand, if the foundation of your marriage is the unconditional commitment love that you promise to one another, When you took your wedding vows if that's the foundation when you said you would be with this person and stay with this person no matter what then your marriage will be able to sustain these disappointments and work through them when they come notice that verse 18 says rejoice in the wife of your youth it does not say rejoice in your young wife Now again, look, the whole passage here is in the context of avoiding adultery, right? What we might call fair proofing your marriage. That's what this is about. And this seems to be immediately addressed here to a younger man who is in that phase of life, maybe he's in his 20s or 30s, where his, his physical urges are still very strong, and perhaps there are times when he finds himself in the company of other women who are not his wife. And today, for us, men or women, that might include at work, or another location where, where maybe people tend to be a little bit more dressed to impressed and they're looking pretty good and we have to work pretty closely with them and there's a temptation to form an attraction as we spend time together. And then at the end of the day, the person goes home to his or her spouse who is not all spiffed up and maybe hasn't even fixed his or her hair and there are little kids running around and the atmosphere is less than romantic at home. Whereas it's so stimulating at work. But this is also applicable to an older husband and wife and to this young guy when he grows up. And, you know, husband, when you get to the point where you you realize that that neither you nor your wife are getting any younger, right? She's no longer built like a Barbie doll. But to be honest, she probably looks a lot more like Barbie than you do like Ken, right? (laughs) But even if that's the case, or even if that's not the case, There's a strong temptation to long for the days of your youth, right? And and for a relationship that has a little more fire and a little more pizzazz to it. Proverbs is telling us the solution to that is not to dishonor God and your spouse and yourself and your family by committing adultery. But at the same time, there is something you can do beyond just letting your marriage grow old and stale. Proverbs says the answer is not when the magic's gone, it's time to move on. The answer is fall in love with the wife of your youth, with the husband of your youth. And I know some of you were married later in life. I get it. You understand what, what that it means here. Even if it's no longer your young spouse. And this line, by the way, blows away another myth, which is that when it comes to romantic love, there's nothing we can do. Right? There's nothing we can do to affect it. There's nothing we can do to fight it. There's nothing we can do to enhance it. No, the lie says, here's what the lie says, that when it comes to falling in love, it's just a flood that goes over us and we have nothing to do with it, right? That we are just passive participants, that we are under love's spell and we have no control at all over this emotion, which is not true at all. It really isn't. Otherwise, why would God instruct us to cultivate, prioritize, put effort into growing and nurturing this kind of love? Why would he basically command us to fall in love with our spouses if it was impossible to do that? So the big question is, of course, how? How does one go about cultivating love and romance in a relationship where the fire has maybe begun to dim a little bit and seems like it's maybe going out altogether? I think there's a hint in verse 19, the beginning of verse 19. It's talking about the guy's wife, and it says, a lovely deer, a graceful doe, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Now, we don't use that language usually today when we're talking about our significant other, right? You, guys, if you went out and bought a Valentine's Day card for your wife recently, if not, there's like 36 hours or whatever you got left. But, but um, you know, it probably didn't say anything about a doe or a deer, right? Or a female deer, right? No, it, it, it didn't, right? We are more lucky to shoot those animals today than we are to compare them to our spouse, right? But let me, So let me update the metaphor for you, okay? Here, here is what it is saying, I think, in Proverbs 5.19. Here is a modern translation of this phrase about the deer and the doe, punctuated by a very famous romantic line from a movie that I found out premiered on Valentine's Day, 1992, okay? So here, here's what it says in today's lingo. It says this. Your wife is a total babe. She is such a babe. If she were a president, she'd be Abraham Lincoln. Okay? <laughs> I would not say that in marriage counseling, okay? But, but do you know what's going on here? That's kind of silly, right? But, but this is an invitation to get your eyes off of the temptation and get your eyes off of the distractions and off of your regrets and off of your disappointments and get this, consider the excellencies of your wife or your husband. The person that you walked down that aisle with. The person who gave him or herself to you. Trusting you for whatever the future would hold even if that was many, many years ago. I want to share something with you today that I found online. Um, some of you may be familiar with the name Ray Ortland. Uh, Dr. Ortland is a pastor in, over in uh, Nashville, and he's the founder of Renewal Ministries. And, and Ray and his wife Janie have written two letters, and you can find them online. Uh, um, they, are, they are written um, to, a, to a, a man and a woman. Um, Ray's wife has written to the man, or Ray's letter is written to the man, and Janie writes to the woman. Um, and, and these, this man and woman that are to receive the letters are at the point where they're considering being unfaithful to their spouse. And this is from the letter that Ray writes to the man, um, uh, but it's applicable to both sexes. I've shortened it some. If you'd like to see both letters in their entirety, um, you can ask me or I can get it for you. You can just Google rejoice in the wife of your youth, what it says here in Proverbs, and it'll be one of the first things that comes up. I got it off the Desiring God website initially. But um, here, is, here is what it says. This is, these are Ray's words in the letter to the husband. He says, no wife can remain young for long. Proverbs 5 wisely points out that she is the wife of your youth. However long you both live as husband and wife, she will always be that girl. Look at her. She is that girl you married back when you both were young. The passing years have no power to change that tender reality. She is still that girl who gave herself to you on your wedding day. She is still that girl who put herself in your arms. She could not have been more vulnerable. She could not have been more honoring toward you. Remember that. Dwell on that. Marvel at that. Think back even further to how the two of you started out. Remember what happened when you began dating, fell in love, got engaged. The wonderful, crazy romance you experienced together was one of life's great privileges. It wasn't just your hormones at work. It was the very flame of the Lord, Song of Solomon 8 6. A sacred fire he himself ignited for your joy and his glory. What you too had going back then, you can have it back. And even better, because you're more mature now, more focused, more settled. But the way you two used to walk and laugh and talk and dream together because you just liked each other, go back there again. Your youthful romance was no foolish illusion. It was real. It hinted at the ultimate reality, the eternal love story of Christ and His bride. Your love story is worth fighting for. Sure, all married couples get dull at times along the way. The humdrum of life and our own inertia take their toll. And yes, you and your wife now realize how ordinary you both really are. Add to that mix the trouble and sorrow you have experienced maybe more than you ever dreamed you would. All of that is real too and a good reason to pray daily for the constant refreshing of the Holy Spirit. But far more significant than all the burdens and blahs of this life, you still have her. She counts for far more than this whole disappointing world. Look at her again. Notice how much about her has not changed. Dwell on that. Think about her faithfulness to you despite your weaknesses and failings. Consider the divine mercy she is to you. Let it hit you that one of God's primary means of your sanctification is the wife of your youth. Sanctification with sex? Isn't that a sanctification you can get behind? Your father is good to you. Your marriage is not about your goodness, but his. Revere his goodness and let your heart melt again. Then rejoicing in God... Rejoice again in the wife of your youth. And again, that goes both ways, women, ladies here. The emotion of romantic love is a powerful one, especially when combined with sexual desire. But we are not helpless in the face of it. It does not control us. It is meant to be enjoyed in the context of a committed marriage relationship. It serves us, we don't serve it. We are not slaves to our passions. We are told not to deny those passions, but to channel them in the right direction, which is toward the wife or husband of our youth. Now, before we wind things up, let me just mention a few more myths about romantic love not at length, okay, but I just want to put things in their proper perspective because I know that whenever we talk about this topic, there are those of you here who who it's painful to hear about because now you, those of you who here who are single, especially if you want to be attached to somebody but you're not, those of you who have recently been hurt in a romantic relationship of some kind, others who may be otherwise wounded in this area, and it's hard for you to sit through a sermon like this But I want you to consider these other very profound truths about romantic love that we all need to understand. First, is this romantic love is not the ultimate goal of life. You do not need a marriage partner to complete you. That is from a movie, not from the Bible. (laughs) The Apostle Paul was single. Even though there are times, and he admitted it, that he felt the desire not to be single. Still, he considered singleness to be the more advantageous way to live a life devoted to Christ in every way. In heaven, none of us will be married. Well, actually, all of us will be, but that's a different thing I'm going to tell you about in a second. Okay? Second, your worth as a person is not determined by your relationship status or by how desirable you think you are To the opposite sex your worth is determined by the god who made you and the price he paid for you when he gave up his own son his one and only son to save you for himself if you're a christian this morning you have been raised with christ you are seated at the right hand of god with christ in the heavenly realms ephesians says and there is no human relationship that can bestow on you that kind of worth and lastly Romantic love, as powerful and passionate as it is, does not exist merely for its own sake. It is a pointer to something else, something better, something more intimate, more passionate, and more blessed. The language and the ideas that we often associate with that romantic, passionate love are in many places in the Bible actually used to describe the love of God for us. Did you know that? And and the pursuit that he undertook in order to win us back for himself. The best book in the Bible to go to, if you want to see this, is the Old Testament book of Hosea, where God, especially at the beginning of that book, where God is pictured as a jealous husband who buys his unfaithful bride back from slavery to the other gods who have become her lovers. But God's love in the book of Hosea is not some kind of cold emotionless calculating decision no on the contrary God says of his beloved he says I will allure her I will take her out into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her later he says how can I give you up my heart recoils within me my compassion grows warm and tender this is not merely you know faithful commitment love it is that but it is also the passionate love of a husband for a wife he never stops dating her He never stops wooing her. He never stops trying to win her back. That's God. And it's really funny to me that hundreds of years ago when these theologians, they were so scandalized by the idea of the Song of Solomon perhaps being about a real man and woman who were in love with each other. And so they made the whole thing symbolic. And they said, well, this is really about God and His people. But think about this. What if it is about God and us? isn't that even more scandalous? I mean, really, that God's love for us would have anything to do with that kind of romantic pursuit? But it does. It does. God rejoices over us. Just like the words we see here in Proverbs about rejoicing in the wife of your youth, Isaiah says, as the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And it's even more amazing that God feels this way about us because let's face it, we, we are not exactly the most attractive thing out there. No, we are not a babe, you know, as, as the language I was using before. We are, we are tainted. We are corrupted. We have contaminated and ruined ourselves. We are damaged goods. And just like Hosea's wife up there on the auction block, we have been unfaithful to God. We've gone after lovers our own gods. And yet, He bought us back. And now we know how He did that, with the blood of His own Son. Jesus gave Himself for us, Ephesians 5 tells us, to make us the perfect bride without spot or wrinkle or any blemish. Do you remember the thrill, husbands, of watching your wife Walk down that aisle. Or wife, when your heart melted, when you saw that, that, that goofy look on your groom's face when, as he, when he stood just dumbfounded at that altar staring at you, that was nothing compared to the joy and the love that is coming when we get married to God. Amen. So in the meantime, are you falling in love with him? Are you falling in love with him? Does it thrill you that he rejoices over you with singing? Does your heart cry out with Psalm 42? My soul thirsts for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? Where is he? I want to find him. God didn't have to give us this fall in love emotion. It sure complicates things, doesn't it? He didn't have to do it, but he did. He did. Did he do it merely to draw us together into relationships where we could make babies and form families? Or is he giving us perhaps a hint of something deeper, something more intimate, something more thrilling, more heart pounding, more joyful, to one day hear the voice of God saying, Come away with me, my beloved. Let's pray.